Welcome to Cast Conversations, a bi-weekly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. Hello everyone. My name is Rosie O'Brien Wojtek and I'm the current president for the Connecticut Association of Schools. Our special guest today is Mr. Robert M. Spector. Mr. Spector is an assistant United States attorney at the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Connecticut. After serving as a state prosecutor with the Connecticut Chief State's Attorney's Office from 1998 through 2001, he started with the United States Attorney's Office in 2002 and became a supervisor in the office in 2007, leading a unit charged with investigating and prosecuting gang and firearm cases. Currently, he serves as Deputy Chief of the Violent Crimes and Narcotics Unit and Chief of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. He leads a task force charged with battling Connecticut's heroin overdose epidemic. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIH, reported on June 2017 that every day more than 90 Americans die after overdosing on opioids. The misuse of and addiction to opioids, including prescription pain relievers, heroin, and synthetic opioids such as fentanyl, is a serious national crisis that affects public health as well as social and economic welfare. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the total economic burden of prescription opioid misuse alone in the United States is $78.5 billion a year, including the cost of health care, lost productivity, addiction treatment, and criminal justice involvement. The sad part of all of this is that many people either know someone or someone who knows someone who is either misusing or addicted to opioids. I can't think of a more timely or important topic than the conversation we will be having today with Mr. Robert Spector. Okay, so let's start by having you tell us a little about yourself, who you are, what you do, especially the evolution of how you became the Deputy Chief of the Violent Crimes and Narcotics Unit and anything else that you'd like to tell us about yourself and your work. Thank you, Rosie. So I am at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I've been there since 2002. I've always been a prosecutor in the violent crime unit. I started out by doing firearms cases and then moved on to doing wiretap cases, gang cases, and I became a supervisor in the office in 2007. More recently, in 2016, we started, uh, when I say we, I started along with DEA, this opioid task force, which is essentially task force in charge of pr- investigating and prosecuting all of the overdose deaths in the state. So we don't handle every single case by any means. The state handles quite a few cases. In some cases, we can't solve. But in the last two years, my office has handled 100 separate cases where somebody's mm-hmm. passed away. On average, before 2016, it was less than one a year. So oh, wow. we've had a dramatic increase in the number of cases that we've handled in the last two years. I would say so. So I would guess that people listening are wondering, just like I am, how did this all happen? How did so many people become addicted to opioids, especially since many of these people were given prescriptions from the doctors that they trusted? So that's a great question, and there's a a few different ways to look at it. There's the how did we get to a point where so many people are using prescription pills, and I think the short answer is that at some point, you know, shortly maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, we were told, either doctors were told or we as patients were told that drugs like oxycodone are not addictive, and that is simply not true. 
And so they've been used both as long-term and short-term medication for over a decade. And many of the cases that I prosecute, the parents that I meet, you'll find that their children started on a prescription pill, not always oxycodone or Vicodin, but sometimes Xanax is often a big one. When I go speak to students and I ask them if any of them know what fentanyl is, maybe 3% raise their hand. If I ask them how many know what Xanax is, 90% of them raise their hand. Really? And that's a drug that I certainly grew up not even being exposed to. So as a society, we become sort of uh, used to these prescription medicines at a kind of a dangerous rate. We think three out of four heroin users start on a prescription pill. And the transition often happens at an age when the free supply of medicine ends. So a lot of people ask me, well, when do you see that transition from pills to heroin? And there's no magic answer, but I would say a lot of it is a money issue. So if somebody as a teenager is experimenting with pills, they're often getting them for free because they're getting it from their medicine cabinets or their friends' medicine mm-hmm. cabinets. But when they go to college, they lose that ability. And it's very expensive on the street. A 30 milligram oxycodone pill sells for $30. So that's very expensive for a a student with no money. Heroin is much cheaper. And so that's when we see that turn into something like heroin. Interesting. So we hear every day that we have a national problem, but just how bad is it here in Connecticut? What are you seeing across the state on our streets and in our towns and our neighborhoods? So it's bad in Connecticut and worse than other states. I've been told that we're seventh in the country in terms of how bad it is. Seventh. Seventh. Can I ask who's number one or do you Well, number one and number two are often said is West Virginia and New Hampshire, but it depends on which statistic. So one interesting statistic, if you look at, there's a, uh, it's not really a map, but it lists all 50 states from 2010 to 2015 Mm -hmm. and how bad their opioid problem is. And New England, as a group of states, is in the top 10. You have Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, all in the top 10. And that was before fentanyl mm-hmm. ever hit the state. Fentanyl is the problem for us. And so in 2017, we're going to lose close to 1,100 people from overdose deaths. Of those, 650 will be from fentanyl. And compared to 2012, we lost 14 people from fentanyl. So in five years, that's an enormous increase. Um, the other dramatic thing about 2017 is we're going to lose more people from fentanyl than from heroin. So we will lose about 150 more people with fentanyl in their system than we will lose with heroin in their system. And so a lot of people ask me, well, why Connecticut? What's fentanyl? Why is it here? Mm-hmm. The short answer is it's mixed in with almost every bag of heroin that's sold. It is much more potent than heroin. It's about 50 times more powerful, and it's much cheaper than heroin. So what we're seeing is it's being sold because it's profitable. It's being purchased because it's powerful. And, um, you know, the idea that people don't know what's in there, that may be true, but I think people are seeking out the, the power of fentanyl because over time, and one of the reasons why I just don't understand why oxycodone is suggested as a long-term pain tool, over time your body adjusts and so you need more of the drug to have the same impact on your body. So fentanyl right. comes in as something so powerful that people are seeking it. 
And it's also hit every town in the state. There's not a town in the state that hasn't been impacted. And it's also dramatic in the sense that if you wanted to buy heroin, buy fentanyl, or buy any of these pills, you don't have to travel very far. You know, most towns, you could buy it in your own town. Most towns. Or your own neighborhood. Your own neighborhood. People are selling it everywhere. And so we're hit by this wave of a toxic drug like fentanyl, a very large demand. And, you know, a lot of people will say to me, well, you know, is this worse than other times in our... And I say, the answer is absolutely yes. And if you're trying to picture why is it worse or what these numbers mean, you know, in 2017, we'll lose a total of 800 people from suicide, homicide, and car accidents. So those three things mm-hmm. together, we'll lose 300 more people from overdoses, which is insane. So we'll probably lose 400 people from suicides, 100 people from homicides, and 300 people from car accidents. And that's probably, we'll probably lose less than that, mm-hmm. but that's, those are just kind of round numbers. And so the idea that we'll lose 300 more people from this one epidemic, you know, that's where we say to the schools, parents, we need to really wake up because it's a problem that's getting worse and we need to arm our kids, frankly, with... with Exactly, and even the medical profession, I would think. So how does violence relate into those statistics? So the violence that comes from the people that are going after the drugs? Most of the, I would say, damage done by these drugs is to the person using it and to their families. So we don't see, luckily, not to say it doesn't exist, and there's certainly you could have law enforcement tell you, listen, there's higher burglaries in our town because people need to steal things to feed their addiction. But more of what we're seeing is people's own families and lives being impacted, either because they use and they pass away, because they use and they need treatment, which is very expensive, or because they're stealing from their own families. They're stealing things out of drawers, pawning things from their own parents, their own grandparents. So the impact is more on the person and their families and their friends than it is broader. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So you were talking about schools and education. So are you seeing opioid addiction in all levels, elementary, middle, high school? And can you comment on the rate of the increase in the school system and with students? So I think what we're seeing, and we've seen it more in middle and high school and definitely high school, is an increase in use of prescription pills. And it's all the pills that we use for legitimate purposes. So it's Adderall, Ritalin, Valium, Vicodin, Ambien, Clonazepam, Percocet, Vicodin, Oxycodone, Oxycontin. That's a list of medicines that are common. And so as a result, that's the list of medicines we're seeing abused. And what we see are literally people just getting it from their medicine cabinets. The statistics on who gets these prescriptions, when you look at opioids, for example, only 3% go to teenagers, 19 and under. 75% go to people 40 and over. So if you think of it in terms of prescriptions, it's not really that kids are getting prescriptions from doctors. They're simply going to their medicine cabinets and getting the medicine that their parents or their grandparents, or their siblings, or their friends, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And schools are not doing a very good job surveying their kids. What I notice, especially as a parent of children in the high school, these surveys that ask about alcohol use and marijuana use, 
don't do a good job on prescription pills. Either they don't do a good job because they don't ask at all, or they don't get specific enough. And I've heard people say, well, you know, we don't want to get into that kind of information. We don't want children to feel uncomfortable. And there's ways to ask the question mm -hmm. on the survey. You know, you can simply ask, and maybe you use this kind of drug without a prescription. Because I don't think the schools are really doing a good job of measuring, do we have kids using prescription pills? They're very good at figuring out if they have kids smoking marijuana or using marijuana or, or drinking, but not as much on prescription pills. So that may be something that we should probably take a look at. Definitely. So maybe something that CAS can look at and to help people with. Our association also has heard from member schools that there's been an increase in student athletes who may be following an injury, slip into addiction of opioids and even heroin. Is collaboration occurring with the medical community, in particular the sports medicine community, regarding opioid prescriptions and the use by young athletes? I don't think it's happening as much as it should. We just scheduled a presentation at CAS in March for athletic directors across the state. We have been pushing for at least a year, and CAS has been very supportive, a protocol whereby anyone who has an athlete who is competing in high school, any parent, has to come to one of our opioid awareness presentations because we have protocols for concussion. We have protocol. I mean, as a parent of varsity athletes, mm -hmm. I know what, what we have to go see and what we have to do, and we have nothing about Vicodin. And... You know, we are the only country using Vicodin. No other country literally will you. We have 99% mm -hmm. of the Vicodin sales occur here in the U.S. If you break your leg in Great Britain, you don't get Vicodin, period. And when I tell people that, they look at me like, well, why is that? And I said, let's pass the why and start focusing on when your child breaks his or her ankle. What are you going to do about it? What decisions? And parents just don't have that kind of information. We want them to understand Vicodin is morphine. Morphine is essentially heroin and so it is something that you would want to think twice about I certainly would mm -hmm. think twice about we have to start thinking about alternative pain medicines especially if you have a family history and so that's where we think we could make some inroads with the high school saying you know what it's hard to get people to come out at night we've had so many nighttime presentations where we have 700 kids come during the day and 20 parents show up at night Right. But if we make it part of a program that already exists where you're addressing the parents of, of athletes about the dangers, because I can tell you so many of the cases we deal with, the person started after injuring themselves. Or surgery. I mean, I'm just thinking, surgery. I'm thinking like the one or two times I've had Vicodin. I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, did I really take that? <laughs> no. But, you know, it's something they give you after you come out right. of surgery and you Absolutely. and all you want is not to feel the pain, but maybe it's that educational piece ahead of time. I mean, now I think doctors are getting smarter about not giving antibiotics every time that you get a cough or a cold sure. or something. And maybe that's something that we have to really start teaching our kids when they're younger yeah. about not not taking these drugs that a little bit of pain is not going to kill you, you know, right. as opposed to what I mean, it might be doing. most adults, if you ask them, did you break any bones when you were little? I know I did. You know, did you ever have that kind of pain medicine? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely not. It was not never even suggested or offered. Yeah. So I think the goal is to connect the sports injuries and Vicodin in a way that 
we make it part of the curriculum of, okay, if you want your child to play sports, not only do you need to know about concussion protocol, but you should also need to know about safe medicine for your child if they get injured on the field. Absolutely, yeah. A lot to think about here. I'm My head's spinning. So we kind of talked a little bit about preventative measures, but what's being put into place across the state to keep people from starting the drugs in the first place and to prevent these overdoses and huge number of deaths that we see across the country every day? So we basically have a two-pronged approach, prosecution and prevention. On the prosecution side, we started that first, and that was essentially changing the minds of law enforcement and saying, when you show up to a scene and somebody has passed away from an overdose, that's a crime scene. We need to investigate that, treat that person like a victim, treat their family like a victim's mm-hmm. family, and figure out who sold the drugs that caused this death and, and prosecute it that way. In doing those cases, we've met a ton of families and the families have expressed an interest in getting involved in prevention. So we have a team of about 20 parents and siblings and fathers and mothers and mostly mothers but there's some fathers and there's some siblings and we call it our HEAT initiative, Heroin Education Action Team and we go to high schools and middle schools We've been to about 80 so far in Connecticut. We have about 10 more scheduled in December and January. And it's about an hour and a half assembly. We have a way of doing it where a prosecutor from my office will speak and go through a lot of the stuff that I was just talking about with pictures and things. We'll show them a picture of a lethal dose of fentanyl which is, you know, the penny is here, and the lethal dose is like a couple grains of sand. Oh, wow. And then we'll show them pictures of fake oxycodone pills. This usually blows them away. In other words, these are these are pills that look like oxycodone. They're marked with oxycodone. They're everything, and they're fentanyl, pure fentanyl. And one pill literally killed somebody at a scene, and I then photograph the other three, and we show them to kids showing it's not just about not taking a pill that's not prescribed to you. It's also not knowing if it's a fake pill. We're seeing a ton of fake pills coming into the state. Fake Xanax, fake oxycodone. So we do this hour and a half assembly where the prosecutor speaks, then we play this movie called Chasing the Dragon. It's about 45 minutes long, made by the FBI and DEA. Really powerful movie. And it comes with a teaching guide. So we play the movie for 45 minutes, then we have one or two parents with us who speak to the kids. This is the part that kids really connect with. Usually it's a parent from the town or from a neighboring town who the kids may even know the child. One of our mothers has a child that went to uh, school in Madison, so when she speaks in anywhere near the Madison schools, Guilford, Old Saybrook, they know her. Uh, I have another mother lost an 18-year-old son in East Haddam, so anytime she speaks in those areas, we're going to Deep River, Chester, she'll be with me. They have credibility because they're not talking about something that happened 10 years ago. They're talking about something that happened last year. They're talking about their star baseball player son mm-hmm. who graduated, went to college, or their daughter who was a star. You know, And it has just a credibility to it. The kids respond. Then we have a DE agent who speaks after that, talks to them just about some of the cases, and then we answer questions. And most of the time, we can't get it all in. You know, kids want to ask questions. They come up to us afterwards. The kids are really attentive. So that's our big push. We want to get into all the schools. Um, if a school would is interested in doing this, who do they contact? Me. 
email you? Robert.Spector okay. with an O-R at usdoj.gov. <laughs> uh, just email me. It's very simple. It's free. There's no cost to the school system. And I'll tell you, with having done it now in half the schools, the school systems that have it done are very appreciative and are very good spokespeople. The ones that have not are, I think, missing the boat. I mean, we've had school systems, and I won't name them here, that have just said no that they don't want to sacrifice instructional time. We've had school systems try to just do a nighttime presentation. We tend to not want to do that because of the poor turnout. So what I tell school systems is, if you want to do a daytime and a nighttime one, no problem. Uh, we did that mm-hmm. in North Brantford uh, last week. Not a problem. Do a nighttime one, but guess what? At the nighttime one, 25 parents came. At the daytime one, the entire school came. So the frustration with the nighttime presentations is, you know, everyone is showing up from my side for free. Mm-hmm. I have parents who are literally pouring their heart out when they when they give their testimonials. And so if I can't fill an auditorium, I don't really want to subject them to that kind of thing. But they do it. They're very mm-hmm. willing to do it. But I, I tell school systems, we got to get the daytime presentations. So how long will we be doing this? I think it's safe to say through this school year. Mm-hmm. But once we get through this school year, we will have done it for two school years in a row. I'm not sure we're going to have the ability to do it for a third year. So our goal is to get to everyone this year. And we'll see. You know, it would be nice if we could do some follow-up programs, smaller programs, more targeted programs once we do the initial. Yeah, so I hope all our listeners are going to email you and sign up because it sounds like it's very worthwhile. Are there other things that school leaders should or could be doing to address the opioid abuse with their school communities? I think so. I hear a lot of schools talk about their health curriculum. I've heard this over and over again. Well, we're really trying to develop our health curriculum, and I think that's great. The problem is most high schools require health as a half unit or half class once in four years. So it's just not enough, and it's not often enough. So what I would like to see, and I think it's easy to do because you can do it around the take-back days. So there's typically two take-back days a year. Uh, We just had one on October 28th, my national take-back days. And my guess is the next one will be in April. And that's a chance for everybody to take their medicine that they're not using and give it to the police and get rid of it. Mm -hmm. That's also an opportunity for school systems, I think, for opioid awareness education. They can do it in a variety of different ways. South Windsor, I should call them out because they just did an amazing program. They did it last week. Um, Several people that I know from our, we did part of it, but just part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It involved the kids, some of them staying at the school, writing letters to their parents about what would happen, uh, what they would say if something had happened to them, if they had died, the child had died, and what they would write, what they want their parent to know. Really powerful stuff. So I think there are schools in the state that are doing what should be done. I think it's the schools that are not that really have to ask themselves, what are you waiting for? I mean, Mm -hmm. this couldn't be more of a crisis. In terms of public health, in terms of Connecticut, if you're an educator in this state and you are not actively pursuing opioid education in your school, it's a problem because the resources are there. DEA paired up with the Discovery Network. There's a whole set of programs through the, through the Discovery Network that are free that you could hook into. Is this true for elementary, too, or is it more I middle? Think, um, I think it's probably more middle school and, and mm-hmm. high school. I know I've been asked, well, is there any age that's too young? The answer is there's no age that's too young, but you have to remember 
what is it you're trying to tell the child? Because in elementary school, a lot of what you want to talk about is how dangerous the pills mm-hmm. are in terms of a kid coming across something and thinking, you know, almost like poisons under the kitchen sink. Like we got to lock this stuff away because somebody could accidentally come across it. Right. For elementary school, you really want to worry about that accidental thing, somebody coming across a pill that you left on a nightstand and that could be a really bad thing. So it's a little bit of a different message yeah. in elementary just, school. Just any kind of pill. Right. As opposed to something specific. Right, and not yeah. knowing what it is. And, like, we try to teach our kids about vitamins, for example, and the difference between a vitamin that you chew, like a vitamin mm-hmm. C, for example, and a pill that's medicine that's dangerous. And sometimes just teaching a second grader that, it's very simple for them to understand. Well, I watch you get the vitamin out of a bottle that I can't open because it's got mm-hmm. that special thing on it. But I watched you hand it to me, and I ate it, and it's supposed to be good for me. And what you'll hear a lot of high school kids say is the reason that they experiment with pills is because they think they're safe, because somebody takes that pill and is prescribed that pill. So it starts at elementary school where we should be telling kids that's really not true that just because it comes in a bottle doesn't mean it's safe for you if you just come across a pill and have no idea what it is then it might not be safe for you or that you don't take anybody else's medicine right i mean that's another huge one right. that could happen so a couple things going through my mind one is kids whose parents may be addicted. Are there programs out there for kids who might, or resources for principals who know that parents may be addicted and trying to get help for their students? We get that question a lot. That's a difficult question where we'll get kids coming up afterwards and saying, I'm worried about my father or uh, my mother or my parent is already in treatment. What I usually try to do is, before we even go into the school, is talk to the principal about their resources. And most schools, frankly, have very good resources. They'll have a school psychologist, for example, and really trying to continue that conversation with the school psychologist just so that that student has somebody that they can talk to. A lot of times, they just want to talk about the situation. The situation is stressful and upsetting, but maybe the parent is in treatment or is seeking treatment, but the student just wants somebody to talk to about it. And so having some sort of school resource officer can be great. We also try to have that person, if it's a police officer, up with us so that students see that person as a friend, somebody who they can talk to, not somebody who's there to police them, but somebody that they can confide in. So we try to get schools to do that before we even come in to say, all right, let's identify your resources. And if you don't have those resources, let's figure out what we want to tell the kids for who they should talk to. Right. Good. And then do you have anything for parents and kids as far as programs that you're doing with them across the state? So for prevention, we do a lot of community presentations. And I would say the parents that come to those, I think, really benefit because it's a slightly different presentation than Mm -hmm. for the students. We do a lot more with trying to educate parents on what do these pills look like, what do the fake pills look like, what are the issues with prescriptions, how is it the kids are getting access to the medicine, what to look for if your child might be using, what their faces, you know, their eyes look like, their appearance, you know, we talk to them a lot about that. 
For treatment, it's a little bit different. We try to simply hook them up with services. We have a whole list of programs across the state that we can connect people with. Treatment is really not our area of expertise, but there's so many really good treatment programs that our goal is simply to get somebody to that service. And a lot of times they'll just come up to me afterwards and ask me about it, and I'll try to help them. Great, great. Okay. So basically how we started this whole interview was by my saying that many people either know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who is misusing, abusing, or addicted to opioids. In fact, some of us probably even know people who have either committed crimes or overdosed. So what can friends or educators do to help? What are some of the best resources that we can use either for ourselves to help other people or to share with other people? So whenever we do a student presentation, I always try to leave them with a few things of like, what can you do? So the first thing I always tell people to do, because it's the simplest and it's the thing we all can do, is get the medicine out of your house. You know, yes, we have fentanyl coming in from China and through the mail, and yes, we have fake pills coming to the state. But when we're talking about our kids, what we're mostly talking about is medicine from our houses. So we need to just get it out and the way you can do it is you can bring it to your local police department you can go to your pharmacy most pharmacies have bags that you can put the medicine in you seal the bag up it destroys the medicine safely and you can throw it in the garbage and you can do that anytime anytime wow so that's the first thing i always tell people get it out of your house get it out of your house get it out of your house the second thing i tell people is try to really understand what an overdose looks like because one of the problems that we have is both kids and parents don't realize when somebody's got a problem and maybe don't do enough. For example, the idea of letting somebody sleep it off. You know, somebody is clearly under the influence of something. You might not know it's an opioid, Mm -hmm. but they're hard to wake up. They're exhibiting signs of distress, but not the kinds of signs that you would typically associate with 911 calls where you know they're having a seizure or they have stopped breathing that's not what an overdose starts out looking like and so I have a whole list of things that you can look for that I tell kids and parents and I say if you're not sure just call 911 Narcan is a really good medicine tool that we have that can stop an overdose but if it's not employed quickly it's not effective so you know, getting the first responders there. You know, we've had so many saves in the last year. We talk about lives lost, but how about lives saved? And so if we can get first responders there quickly, you can save a life. So I I often will talk to parents where you have kids sleeping over your house or to kids where they're at a party or they're back at a friend's house. And I try to talk to them about, you gotta stand up for your friends and don't worry about getting in trouble. Nobody's gonna get you in trouble. You're not gonna get in trouble because you drank or because you, you get caught with pills. You're just not. And I could tell you story after story where friends make bad decisions because they're worried about getting in trouble and then somebody passes away. So that's another mm-hmm. area. I often talk to parents about understanding what opioid, you know, education is so important. So do I expect that every parent's going to go and start reading up on what oxycodone is? No. But I do think it's important to understand it's a very powerful drug. And if you're going to the doctor and your kid has their wisdom teeth out, which is kind of a universal, everyone has it done, then I would think very carefully before letting my child have 
Percocet or Vicodin or Tramadol, which is a weak opioid. You know, these are drugs that are powerful and can be dangerous. And if you don't know your family history with addiction, there might be alcoholism way back before, you, you know, a great-grandparent kind of thing. I would be really careful before accepting that prescription. Because what I do hear from parents is, well, I'm going to fill it just in case. And that's what led to us having so much medicine in our medicine cabinets. So, you know, I would encourage you to have that discussion with the doctor right there because a lot of times the doctor's attitude is, I'm worried about your pain. It's mm -hmm. not that the doctor doesn't care. It's the opposite. They don't want you to be in pain. Right. Pain is the fifth vital sign. We've been told that pain is really, really important to treat. But that doesn't mean you need to accept that prescription or ask, is there a non-opioid pain medicine you can recommend? Is there a treatment worth Tylenol and Motrin that would be effective? You know, ask those or questions. Ice. <laughs> or ice. Let's just put ice on it until you're numb. Sure. Yeah. Physical therapy, right. which, um, you know, yeah. Yeah, all of those things. So is there one resource place that would be a good place for people to go, a website? A I mean, you can definitely look at our website. If you put HEAT, H-E-A-T, and U.S. Attorney's Office, you'll come to our website. There's a lot of things on our website. I would encourage people to go to the FBI's website and watch this Chasing the Dragon movie. It is eye-opening. All you have to do is Google Chasing the Dragon FBI, and you will see this documentary it's worth watching it's not the kind of thing you can watch 10 minutes of it tells a story and so the stories there's six or seven different people that it tracks and then it checks in with them again two years after the movie was made so the ending is, is even probably the most important part of it but especially for people who want to have that conversation with their kids that's a great way to do it you know just watch that movie with them we also have a new public service announcement project that we've launched through Facebook and social media. Eleven of our parents from HEAT agreed to make PSAs. A media company donated its services. The first blast went out last week. It was an um, opioid public service announcement that combined all the PSAs, sort of in an intro PSA. Um, that seemed to have a good viewing. I think it was up to about 90,000 views so far. So we're strongly suggesting you look for that mm -hmm. on Facebook and the more we can get people to just kind of open their eyes to the to the dangers of these prescription medicines that's really the goal I agree so is there anything else that we didn't talk about today that you think would be important for either the Connecticut Association of Schools or for our listeners I don't think so I think you know we we really think it's an imperative that principals, and it's pretty much a decision by a principal, not a superintendent. Often the superintendent will delegate that decision, but I think our principals in these schools that haven't had us yet have to really take ownership of this problem and see it as a problem. What I always tell principals is we're not dealing with an influx of teenagers passing away, thank God. But what we are dealing with is teenagers becoming addicted to this medicine, going to college and being addicted, and then passing away when they're 20 or 21 or 22 or 24. Every one of those parents you talk to will tell you a story of how this child started when they were 
in eighth grade or ninth grade or tenth grade. So it's hard for people to see because they say, well, this isn't really a problem in my school. And our point is that let's keep it that way. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the whole point of prevention. These drugs are so addictive that you want to get us in there before it's a problem. Exactly. And it is all of our problems. I mean, this is a state problem. It's a national problem. It's an urgent problem. And the fact that you're doing this for free, you all need to be commended for that because it is a great opportunity. So I do hope our listeners will take you up on that. Um, It's been a pleasure talking with you today, Robert. You've mentioned these resources to us. We will try to get those out to all of our cast members and make sure that everyone knows what they can do and where they can find you. Thanks so much for talking with us today, and thanks to all of the members of your department and the task force for everything they're doing to fight this problem. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of CAS Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.